So we're wrapping up our series today on rethinking sexuality. And I hope over the last uh, few weeks you've been, uh, been challenged uh, to have an answer and to really look at our own lives. And as I thought about this series, one of the things I, I, that kept permeating through the series was, was just gracious living, was how we are all sinners in need of a Savior, how none of us has any place to stand to look down on others. We all humbly come before Jesus. But at the same time, we have a standard in the Scripture, and we have God's Word that we can't deviate from. And so how do we, in a world that is increasingly hostile to the things of the Lord, or don't even think about the things of the Lord, how do we then communicate a message or have a place to stand? And so really that's what I want to do today, is just, is just walk through how we can have a, a story to tell that honors our Creator, but also honors us as His created. Here's a statement from the International uh, Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. It says this, For other sexualities to be possible, it's indispensable and urgent that we stop governing ourselves by the absurd notion that only two possible body types exist, male and female, with only two genders inextricably linked to them, man and woman. We make trans and intersex issues our priority because their presence, activism, and theoretical contributions show us the path to a new paradigm that will allow us as many bodies, sexualities, and identities to exist as those living in this world might wish to have, with each one of them respected, desired, and celebrated. And this may be an extreme position, but it shows the choice, not the struggle to understand how we're made is the real concern. Our, our concern as people who know Jesus is to understand how we're made. It's not the struggle about a choice. Now think about if this statement was carried to its logical conclusion, there would be seven billion sexualities and identities right now on planet earth that's where this leads logically why is it absurd to believe there's only two body types why is it to believe that there is a man and a woman why why does that seem absurd to our world isn't it interesting how fast if this has all changed in the last few years if you would go back 10 years ago and say you know there'll come a time when we are debating whether there is just men and women, you would say, well, that's crazy. But today, that is crazy. And the, and the, the, the cultural tide, the cultural opinion has shifted. But as followers of Jesus, we have a biblical mandate and a worldview that we need to stick with. It's not up for debate. It's not up for change. It's not up for what I feel. But at the same time, Sometimes how we communicate that gets lost in our attitudes or in our judgmentalism. When sexual ethics have become socially prominent, Christians have joined the anti-camp. We are anti-same-sex marriage, anti-gay. But when Christians are labeled pro, it's pro-traditional marriage. It's, it's, it's pro-traditional right, marriage of man and woman. And so, so this is the problem if you think about it. When we are labeled anti, we are anti-P, 
people, but when we are labeled pro, it's pro-institution. It's a distinction that we need to make sure we understand. We are pro-marriage, which means what? We're for the institute of, institution of marriage, but we are anti-gay when we're labeled anti. And what does that mean? We are against people. Now, what resonates more with the hearts and the minds of people, an institution or individuals? Well, it's individuals. See, we've already lost. When we are pro, we are pro-institution. But when we are anti, we are anti-individuals. And so somehow that gets lost in the equation. When there are two pro-camps, the camp that's in favor of love, people, and rights always prevails against the camp that is pro-institution. It's just, it's just how it is. And so when we are pro-traditional marriage up against pro-love wins, what's going to win? Well, love is every time. Institutions don't win. It's the hearts and minds of people that win. But listen, the Bible is pro-love and pro-people, even with its limitations on sexual expression. It may surprise both the LGTB community and conservative Christians who are shouting at each other that there are only a handful of scripture passages about sexual morality and same-sex behavior. It doesn't limit the seriousness of those passages, though. We never put things into a basket and say, well, there's more passages on this, so it means more than a place that only has a few passages, but there are only a few places. Sam Albury says this, at the very least, this does show that the Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. It's not what the Bible is about, and sometimes we make it seem like that's what the Bible is about, that it's about sex, and it's only about sex. And so when we have split people into the supposedly unbroken, the heterosexual, and the broken, everyone else, we make ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong, of what's beneficial and what's harmful. Janelle Williams Paris says this, even humble Christians who make every effort to be kind and gracious toward homosexuals are not really reaching out, they're reaching down from a place of moral evaluation. And Christopher Yuan says this, he urges us not to strive for heterosexuality, but holy sexuality. The journey towards sexual holiness is for all people. And when we divide people into the unbroken heterosexuals and everybody else, the unbroken says, well, I have nothing I need to work on. But the Bible says differently. There's lust and there's control and there's the hooking up culture. It doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or not. So the Bible looks at all of us as broken. But in this sexual context and in our discussions, we tend to say these are the unbroken people and these are the not broken people. But the message of the Bible is what? We are all broken. There is no unbroken people. There are serious broken people in every kind of relationship. The fact is we are all bent rulers trying to judge others as crooked. And it just doesn't work. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says. This is on your notes. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Now, that word for defense is the Greek word apologia, which is where we get our term apologetics. Now, apologetics is not, I'm sorry, right? That's not a, it's a defense. 
It is, here are some good reasons, or it's a, it's a plea. You've been charged with something, and so your defense is your apologia. How am I going to answer this charge? And as believers who trust God's word and say that, it's, it, that God's word is true, we often get charged, don't we, with hate or we get charged with homophobia. We get charged as being bigots. We get charged as all those kinds of things. And so in that charge, we need to what? Have a defense, have, a, have an apologia, a, a plea. But Peter says what? Deal with gentleness and respect. We're not reaching down. What are we? We're reaching out to other humans who are broken just like us. We can touch people's hearts. Listen, we can touch people's hearts because we have a more compelling story. We just haven't known how to tell that story. What we've done is saying, God hates this, therefore he doesn't like you. And so we haven't had a compelling story. And so the objective today is, what is the story that we can tell to to have a good defense for why we believe what we believe, but also maybe in a winsome, compelling way to win hearts and minds of people? Listen, God is not arbitrarily prohibiting certain conduct. He is protecting something sacred. That's the beginning of the story. The story isn't that God is saying, I am a cosmic killjoy, and I'm going to have all these things be off limits. No, what is he doing? He is putting a, a, a fence, a barrier around something, and he's trying to protect that as sacred. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Paul says this is the kind of the issue that we have, and we can see this in our lives today in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, he just came off of this thing, right, about uh, worshiping created things. He says in verse 25 is this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We talked about this with Satan's tactics. Here's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to believe a lie. Our problems in our life, the things that are going wrong in our lives, are generally because we are believing a lie. It's not the truth from God. And Jesus said the truth will what? Will set you free. Satan is here to kill, steal, and destroy. And the way he does that is through deception. So if Satan can get you to believe a lie, we talked about some of those lies. You'll never be loved. God will never accept you. You are unworthy. Why, look what you've done. You can never be forgiven. Those are lies that Satan tries to keep us in bondage. And so Paul says this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, we don't serve or worship little idols, but we can serve human reason. We can worship human reason. We can worship culture. We can worship opinions, right? So it doesn't just mean that we are worshiping a little figurine. What it means is we are worshiping, making something the ultimate truth besides God himself. The boundaries God has placed on sexuality are there to protect its sacredness and in turn, our sacredness. And that's the story that we need to tell. So how does the Christian worldview of sexuality do that? Listen, the Christian worldview offers a more compelling story. It offers a story that touches our hearts when we really understand it. The first way is this. Sex produces sacred beings and is therefore sacred. 
Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You need it this week. Look up the, the crying chicken lady. There was a lady who's in love with her, with her feathered child. She calls it a feathered child. And the feathered children do not need to be killed and eaten. Although they taste pretty good. Those roast chickens, that barbecue chicken, oh baby. But she's crying because of this, her, it's her feathered child. Listen lady, you have got a few screws loose. That is a chicken. That is not your child. Only humans are created in the image of God. There is no chicken. I know how much you love your dog. I know how much you love your cat. None of them bear the image of God. Only human beings do. That's why every human being has dignity and worth, regardless of mental capacity, regardless of skin color, regardless of education, regardless of anything. We are, our worth and our dignity come because we are made in the image of God. And so human sacredness, if we start there, it leads us to see why sexuality is sacred and worth protecting. Listen, when you ooh and ah over a baby, aren't they so cute? Like those little chubby cheeks and those eyes. They're cute till they start crying. I get it. But even to the parents, it's a lovely sound, I'm told. And so we ooh and we ah. Listen, we are looking at a being with divine fingerprints. That's what we're ooing and aahing over. We're ooing and aahing over a being that's created in the image of God. And so humans are sacred just from the fact we're created in his image. You have never met an unsacred human. It's just, it's just how it is. Your, your, your gender is sacred. Your ethnicity is sacred. You are an embodied being. It's, it's spirit and body together. That's the sacredness of who we are. And how do these sacred beings arrive on planet Earth? It's not the stork. I know, right? The stork with a little baby. No. How do these sacred beings appear through the sexual act? And because these beings are sacred, the process that gets them here is sacred. And we've lost that. It's a more compelling story. It's a more compelling reason why we say, here's some things that God has said are off limits. It's not because he doesn't want you to have fun. It's not because he doesn't want you to be true to yourself. It's because we are sacred and the process that he created to get us here is sacred. Now listen, there may be 7 billion genders on the planet according to the human rights campaign, but, it, but there's only a man and a woman that's ever going to bring a baby here. Ever. It's just how it is. I don't care what you want to define a person as, what a person wants to define themselves as. It only takes, it takes a man and a woman to bring a baby. That's it. It's half the chromosomes. They come together and make a full human being. And so it's the process that is sacred. Because a human being is a sacred product of sex, the sexual process by which the human being is brought into the world is also sacred. And so we see the dignity in the physical part of us. That's why when we say a man and a woman, yes, the two genders, is because that's the only way a baby can be born. There's not a third or fourth or fifth classification. It's still a man and a woman. 
And so sex produces sacred beings. We're, we're sacred beings. The second thing that it does is this. It affords us the privilege of reflecting something beautiful about God. Now listen, God is the ground of all being. Sartre asks this, why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever been driving in your car and just those random thoughts? You're like, why is there, why? Why? Like, this could be nothing. Like, we could just be in this, well, we could not be in a black void because we would not be here to experience the black void. But why is there something rather than nothing? And he says there's one of two answers. A personal God who thinks, feels, and chooses did it, or something that is not personal and it, a force, a zap, a something, right? And so that's the only two ways that this, all this could be here. That's the only way that any of us could be here. Either a personal God chose to do it, or it was just some zappy kind of thing. And we are contingent beings. We are not here on our own initiative or our free will. Now, we are here today, like you decided to come to church, but you did not arrive on this planet of anything you did. That decision was made by somebody else called your parents. So you, we are all contingent beings. And when we ask, why am I here? I don't mean at church. I don't mean here now. But we are, we are dependent. We are contingent beings. Consider the communion tray uh, that's sitting here on the communion table. How does the communion tray stay here? It's on the table. How does the table stay here? It's on the floor. How does the floor stay here? It's on the foundation. The foundation is on the earth. How does the earth stay here? It's all the gravitational pull and the sun and, and gravity keeps us all pulled together. And so this communion tray is not here at this moment by itself. It's not hanging in the air. It's contingent upon the table. That's contingent upon the floor. That's contingent upon the foundation and it's the same for us. We are here because we are contingent on something else. And so ultimately, if you dig down far enough, what has to be there? God. It cannot be an infinite whole, because if it's an infinite whole, there would be nothing here today. We would not be here if it was an infinite whole. Because if it's an infinite whole, it means it goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and there's no way for it to be built up to be today. And so one of the reasons that we say, how do we know God exists, is because we can say, because it's today. Today, March 24th, would never be here if there was an infinite eternity prior to us. Because it would never build enough to come this way. It would just be sinking into that eternal hole. Not even the earth has a first cause, right? Those gravitational forces. Everything in creation derives its power from something else. You are sitting on the pew, which is on the floor, right? On the foundation. And so your power to be in existence today is contingent on something else. Now look what Acts 17 says. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. And Colossians 1.17 says this about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why is there something rather than nothing? It's because a personal God chose to create, and because, according to Colossians, Jesus is holding it all together. 
We are here now. We are, we exist right now in the moment. Pinch yourself. Not too hard. Pinch yourself. Are you awake? Are you alive? Are you here? Yes. Why are you here right now? It's because God is holding all of this together. Our being is contingent upon him. So God is the ground of all existence because he does not, he's the only being that doesn't depend on anyone else for his existence. We depended upon our parents for existence. We are depending upon the floor for our existence right now at this level in this place. But God is the only being who is not depending upon anyone else for his existence. He just is. And without God, there is no oughtness. Oughtness means why should we do something and why shouldn't we do something? Why should I not run you off the road if I'm angry? Why, why should I not just kill someone? Well, you say, because it's wrong. Well, why? But you're saying it's wrong. Why is it wrong? You're, you're giving an ought. And as soon as you say something ought to be done or something ought not to be done, you are appealing to God because without God, there is no oughtness. If it is all random, if there is no personal God, why are we doing anything that we're doing? You say, well, because I need to respect people. You just use the word need. Why do you say you need to respect people? Well, my parents told me that. Well, where did your parents hear it? Well, from their parents. You cannot use words like need and must and ought without God. There is no reason to do it. Now, society says, well, if you do it, you'll go to jail. Okay, well, there's an ought. Where did they get the ought, right? See, everything goes back to who? It goes back to God. So without God, there is no oughtness. If everything is random, there is no right or wrong. Even for the statement I read at the beginning from the LGBT Rights Commission that says there ought to be, did you hear what they said? There ought to be as many sexual identities as there are people. Well, why did you use the word ought? What makes you say the word ought? Because unless there's a God, you have no grounds to stand for ought. You are just a bunch of chemicals that are firing in your brain that comes out with the word ought, and I don't need to believe it. So you say ought, and I say ought not. Without God, there's nobody to arbitrate. Do you see where I'm going? Like, so without God, there is no ought. Without God, there is no must. Without God, there is no need to. And that's all, but that's all we hear is, we ought to do this. We need to do this. And as soon as we say, well, why do you say need? Why do you say ought? Well, just because. Well, no, it's not because. You're appealing to a personal God who is behind all this. So now we can start somewhere at the same place. Francis Schaeffer says this. Um, if there is no ought, if there is no God, he says there's no one home in the universe. <laughs> We're just here on this rock spinning around the sun. Interesting that sexuality is called knowing. In Genesis chapter 4, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And so what Adam and Eve, that word for know, in the euphemism for the sexual act in Scripture, is also that same word for knowing God, right? There's an intimacy that goes with that. Human sexuality is about knowing another person. Listen, there is someone home in the universe. It's God. He's here. And there are good philosophical reasons 
for why we can believe in God. So don't you ever let anybody say you are an idiot or you're unintelligent or you have a blind faith for believing in the Lord. Listen, we have more reasons to believe in God than the person who doesn't believe in him has. But we haven't told a compelling story. You see, the capacity for knowledge is what it means to bear God's image. We can know God. Since God is the uncaused cause, we are all caused causes. We were all caused by somebody else. But God is the uncaused cause. He can tell us what something's purpose is. And since God is the creator that tells us what a thing's purpose is, we have the privilege of reflecting something beautiful about him when we tell the story of what scripture teaches about a man and a woman united in the covenant of marriage for life and the sexual bond belongs in that union. Well, how do we know that? Because it's what God has told us. He is the uncaused cause. He is the one. We are all contingent on someone else. And I can't invent it. I can't redefine it. I can't make it up as I go. I have to go to the uncaused cause, which is God. Now, we wouldn't know anything about God unless he told us. And he has told us through the centuries he's revealed to his prophets and his apostles. And they wrote it down for our benefit. And so we have this great understanding that, remember, the sexual union is a metaphor for God's covenant love. You think about this, the, um, the sexual act in scripture. It's a man, one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for life. That's where the sexual act is. What does that tell us about God? God wants a relationship of love with us, an intimate relationship, a faithful relationship. In fact, the Bible says even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so when we think about the sexual act, it should point us to God and say that's the kind of God that there is in this universe. A God who wants to love us intimately and be faithful to us. Uh, be uh, know us and there's no other act that will do that and so the sexual act is a metaphor it's what ephesians chapter 5 is all about about a husband and a wife it's not about yes it's about marriage roles but it points us to something greater it's the mystery of jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride we are in covenant with him now the third thing is this the sexuality is a portrait of unity and diversity I don't know if you've noticed, but men and women are gloriously different. The word is gloriously. Because sometimes it's not so glorious. It's irritating. It can be, there can be friction, right? But, but men and women are gloriously different. From chromosomes to hormones to temperaments, right? Our differences can drive us mad or it can make us laugh. And sometimes it does both at the same time, right? It can be so irritating. And because of the differences between men and women, it's the stuff of sitcoms and romance novels and Shakespearean plays and everyday life. And, I, you know, the last time I was in the doghouse, which was not too long ago, it's because I didn't recognize these glorious differences. Christy started using the phrase, that must be a guy thing. You mean me glossed over and not paying attention and wanting to get out of this conversation? That's a guy thing? Yes, it is, because we are gloriously different. Remember, we are contingent beings. We are here for a cause outside of ourselves. Why do we crave relationships? Now, the, the secularist would say, well, it's to preserve your DNA. Evolution has built this in that you need to pass on your DNA. So sex is nothing more than a process to pass on the DNA. 
kind of leaves it a little empty, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, there's just nothing there. I don't think Hallmark would survive very long if that was their philosophy. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm glad we're passing on our DNA. Like, there's just something, right? There's just something not there. But why do we, why do we crave relationships? Because God, right, the uncaused cause created us. We are made in his image. And there is an eternally unified diversity in the community of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is also God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They, they share the divine nature, so they are a single what? They are one being with three distinct divine centers of consciousness, so they're three who's. It's one being and three who's. And so this explains why we value diversity. Nothing explains human longing for diversity better than the Trinity. We have in God three who's, one person. What is it? It's unity in diversity. And so think about sexuality. With one man and one woman marriage expresses and reflects what? That unity in diversity. Men and women miraculously come together to form this bond of fidelity. In fact, Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word one does not mean the number one. It means unity. There is, a, there is a coming together. Rightly understood, it means they shall become a unified flesh. Now, why would God design it this way? Why would God take two different beings and say, I want you two different beings to come together in unity? It's because it's who he is. We're created in his image. And so when we say one man and one woman, right, we are reflecting who God is. That's the story. That's who we are. We none of us showed up on this planet of our, of our own. We are all here by the uncaused cause. And so because God is this unity and diversity, that's why we say one man and one woman in the bond of marriage. Just because it's who God is. Well, we've not told that story We've just said, God hates you. God doesn't like this relationship. God doesn't approve of this. But no, there's something bigger. We have a bigger worldview. We have a bigger picture of what that means. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus quotes that again and says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall become one, right? A man and a woman. We are given the privilege through the opposite sex marriage to reflect the unity and the diversity of God who is the foundation of all reality. That's our story. Listen, our hearts can break for people. Our heart, we can, we can have compassion and we can cry with people and we should. But we're not coming from a place of judgment. We're not coming from a place that I'm better than you are. We are coming from a place that this is who God is and this is how he has created us. And our lives, our sexuality, reflect who God is. There's no other arrangement that's going to work. It has to be a man and a woman to reflect what? Unity in diversity. Two men. It may be unity, but it's not diversity. Two women. It might be unity, but it's not diversity. One man and two women. It's, well, there's going to be lots of problems. There's no unity there, but, right? but, but two are the same, right? That's why it's one 
and one. It's the unity of diversity. If you are a man, you are vital to the unification of sexuality and marriage because you're a male and not a female. You see, maleness and femaleness matter in God's creation. Now, has culture dictated? Absolutely. And so we have to be careful that we're not rebelling against God's word, but but culture, why is it that boys wear blue and girls wear pink? Somebody just said it. God didn't say it. What if it was the other way? What if, right? Not a big deal, right? So we have to separate the culture things from the God things. And we're, we've not been so good at that. And so the, the maleness, that's the, that's the reaction of our world today, of the abuse. Men are not, right, are, are, are sometimes aggressive and abusive. And that's, that's nothing to do with maleness as God created it. That's sin warped authority is what that is. So as a male, you are vitally important. As a female, you are vital to the unification of sexuality and marriage because you're female and not a male. It's because that's how God has, has designed it as unity in diversity. Just look around. Why are we all different in the body of Christ? It's what? Unity in diversity. It's just how God is. They say every snowflake is different. Why? When it all piles up, it looks like snow. It's unity. But you look at them each individually. What is it? It is diversity. Listen, we serve a diverse God, but a God who also uh, loves unity. It's the body of Christ. It's diversity and unity. It's all those things coming together. And so we say, we, our story is this. It's a man and a woman because we reflect something about God's nature himself. Now, People may still think you're hateful. People may still think you're a bigot. People may still think you're narrow-minded. But isn't that story much different than saying God hates you? God doesn't love you. We're we're trying to win hearts, and we're trying to say, look, this is is who God is. And so, yes, that's how he has structured us. That's how he wants us to come together. And so what about those who are single, you might ask? You see, one of the most longing uh, things of the human heart is for romantic attachment. We want to be romantically attached because of our createdness. It's how God has designed us. Most of us have a hard time resisting food or cigarettes for our own good to honor God. We all have things in our life that go against ways that honor God. Listen, none of us is guaranteed a life without loneliness. If our sexual, in our sexualized culture, we tend to equate sex with intimacy. Or those who forsake Sexual intimacy is broken. Listen, earthly human marriage is not our savior. Christ is our savior. Rosaria Butterfield says this, Too many young fornicators plan that marriage will redeem their sin. Too many young Christian masturbators plan that marriage will redeem their patterns. Too many young Christian internet pornographers think that having legitimate sex will take away the desire to have illicit sex. They're wrong. And the marriages that result from this line of thinking are dangerous places. She says, I know why so many Christian marriages end in divorce. Because Christians act as though marriage redeems sin. Marriage does not redeem sin. Only Jesus himself can do that. And we have made an idol of marriage, especially in the church. We say, if you're broken, you need to be fixed. And the way you're fixed is to get a spouse. 
And that's been the unintentional and sometimes the intentional message that the church has taught for years. And as a single person, if you have heard that, I am sorry that you have gotten the wrong message. That is not the message of the gospel. Jesus is our Savior. Marriage is not our Savior. In fact, if I go into marriage thinking it's going to save me, it is going to break under the weight that I'm placing on it. There are many lonely people who are married. Marriage doesn't fix anything. It only magnifies and makes things worse. What marriage does, it's a metaphor for the love that God has for us. Covenantial, faithful, intimate love. That's marriage's purpose. Marriage's purpose is not to fix us. What do you have when one sinner marries two sinners? You have two sinners. Then you have three, four, and five as they start reproducing. It's, and we have, we've got the wrong message about marriage. It's fascinating that the two most influential people in history, Jesus and Paul, were single. Neither one of them, I would say, was emotionally or relationally broken. And they did just fine. Jesus said in heaven, we will neither be married nor given in marriage. We are to be in a relationship with God. That is our start here. And that's what's going to happen into eternity. Turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. We're going to end on the, at the end of history because this history is moving somewhere. And in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, it says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is the promise of the restoration of all things. God himself will be with us. I, I heard this the other day, uh, Josiah and we were on our way home from Indiana, and it was on the radio, and, and the, it was a Christian station, and uh, they just asked these dumb questions. And, uh, if you could ask Jesus any question, what would you ask him? And, okay, okay it's a kid, we'll give him a break. I would ask Jesus if there were boats in heaven. Boats? He loves, he loves boating. Josiah says, Dad, what would you ask? I would ask Jesus why people are asking Jesus stupid questions, is what I would ask. You see, the problem is, we just think heaven is a better here. I love football here, so heaven's going to be a big football game. I love to eat here, and every time I look at food, I put on a couple pounds, and so heaven's going to be the big buffet where I never gain any weight. That's not heaven. Heaven is not a better here. It's a different here. It's a restoration. And the thing about heaven is that it's God with us. That's heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. Yes, we're going to have restored bodies. Yes, all the benefits, right? Creation is going to be restored. And guess what's going to be restored? Maleness and femaleness is going to be there for all eternity. But heaven's not a better here. It's about God. It's about seeing him. It's about relationship with him. We are not going to be married in heaven because marriage is a metaphor for the intended relationship with our creator. It's no longer needed in heaven because the thing that marriage points to is God and in heaven, he's going to be right there. And so I see him 
So life is a training ground. Through our sexuality and through marriage, what's it to do? It's to point us to God. And in the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to be there. Listen, the Bible does not ignore the single life or treat it as having a lower status than the married. That is cultural. That is sometimes the church. Singleness is a metaphor. Listen, if marriage is a metaphor for the marriage of Jesus, of God, what is singleness? Singleness is a metaphor for the risen, ascended, glorified Christ before he returns for his bride. That's what singleness is. Singleness is the metaphor for Jesus where he is right now. And then he what? Then he comes back for his bride. And so don't you let anybody tell you're less than because you're single. You just tell them I'm a metaphor for Jesus. My single life is a metaphor for the risen, ascended, and glorifying Lord of the universe. And I have nothing to be ashamed of. I have nothing to apologize for. I am in a metaphor of who Jesus is. You see, unity and diversity not only undergirds all of creation, but it consummates in God's redemptive plan for history. History is moving. We had creation. We had the fall. Sin entered the world. We had redemption where Jesus went to the cross. He resurrected. Celebrating a couple weeks, all those things. But he's coming again. Everything's going to be restored. Everything is going to be renewed. And here's the great news. You know what? At the culmination of history, a great wedding is going to take place. That's where we're moving. That's why it matters what we believe. It matters the story that we tell. The, bo- the body of believers in the Bible is repeatedly referred to as the bride of Christ. It's unity in diversity. Jesus is a man. His church is a woman, she, and they come together. The relationship between God and man created in Eden was vandalized by sin, right? It was marred and distorted. It'll finally be restored. And so what's the thing that God says, I want you to understand this of the restoration? It's a wedding. Marriage is a metaphor for God's love for his people, but it also, it's also points us to the hope that we have at the end of time. In Revelation 19, back up a couple chapters, in verse 7, it says this, I, or starting in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. And here's what the voices were saying. The voice said, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. A wedding is the picture of restoration. God has chosen marriage between a man and and a woman to foreshadow the ultimate reconciliation of himself to humanity. That's the story that we have to tell. It exists. History exists because an uncaused creator of all things is moving us toward a place, a state that we will exist in forever is the bride of Christ with our bridegroom. That's where we're headed. And what reflects that reality, what reflects the gospel, what reflects all of history, it's biblical sexuality and marriage that reflects that beauty. It just does. 
There's no other arrangement. There's no other modification. There's no other thing uh, that we can put together that's going to reflect that beauty. And we have the privilege of reflecting that beauty of God himself. Do we have a better story? I think so. I think we do. I think we have a more compelling story of, of why, why we believe what we believe. It's rooted in the truth of who God himself is. We are just merely reflecting our creator. We're merely reflecting the world as he created it. We have a story that reflects the beauty of a God, an uncaused cause who decided to create human beings in his image. And when they failed, he sent his one and only son to redeem us from our sin. This is the God we're talking about. And that all those who are in him won't perish, but have what? Tell me, everlasting life. Where's the everlasting life going to be? It's going to be a great wedding banquet. A feast where the bride himself, the bridegroom himself comes for the bride. That's the story. You see, our story is grounded in who God is. It's grounded in history, where history is moving. It's grounded in the truth of God's word. And so we do. Our plea, our apologia, our, our explanation, well, well, why do you believe that? You just hate people. No, 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 no. God's pre- preserving something sacred because that's the way that sacred beings come into this world. It's still a man and a woman. Now, I haven't been in seventh grade health class for a long time. You know, that's a class about the plumbing. It's all the things. How these things go over to these things, and then out comes this thing. It's all that. But left out of all of that is the spiritual undergirding and the reality of life as it is. The emotional connections, the intimacy, the creativeness. That's the story that God has. You see, the world can tell a story, but it's not a story rooted in truth. Just because I feel something or think something doesn't mean it's true. For years, people thought the world was flat. If you could go back and interview them, they would die telling you the world was flat. Don't go near the edge, you're going to fall off. (laughs) There's a dragon over there that's going to eat you alive. Don't do it. They were sincere in their belief, but they were sincerely wrong because that wasn't the reality of the world. You see, as believers in Jesus, the truth is the reality of this world, of how God created it, of how this world is all moving to a culmination of all things. So does it give us hope? Absolutely. Does it give us hope as we have this story to tell that we don't have to accept the label of bigot, homophobic, narrow-minded, prudish, old-fashioned. We don't have to accept those labels because we have a story to tell. Amen? We have a more compelling story to tell. We have a story that's rooted in God himself, this unity in diversity that all of life points to him. As we come time for our decision, time for prayer, it's, it's just once again to be reminded of what? That amazing grace that God has given us. We have no cause to be arrogant. We have no grounds to look down on others for their sin. We have no way to say, well, you're worse than me. Listen, we are all sinners in need of grace. 
We're all sinners that need to be forgiven. There is no such thing as unbrokenness. We are all broken. We're all messed up. And we all need Jesus. Amen? We were all in bondage to sin. And Jesus has the keys. And it opens those prison doors. And we have freedom. Would you please stand? And we're going to sing. If you have a prayer need, you can meet the guys in the back. Father, we thank you for this really the story of you, the story of who you are. And God, I know it's, sometimes it's a, it's a lot of stuff that we ingest, but would you help us in our minds just have a clarity, a cohesiveness of the plea of a story that we can tell to others that's rooted in you, the, 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 the ground of all existence. We are here because of you. God, and in those times when we don't want to be kind or gentle, would you just through the Holy Spirit just really nudge us, slap us upside the head if you have to, but God, get our attention that we are talking to someone who is made in your image and they may never talk to another believer in their life. God, would you draw people to us who are curious about, yes, why we're odd, why we believe these things, but God, that we can tell this great, compelling story that's grounded in you. And in the end, that we would touch hearts, that people would say, yes, I want to know more about this Jesus who died for me. Yes, I want to know more about this Jesus who offers me grace. Yes, I want to know more about this Jesus, that the chains are gone and I've been set free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Over these next few moments, just minister to us, Lord. Help us get some composure in our thoughts, challenge us in our sin to repent. Father, help us to commit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.